Hello, and welcome to The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, movies, and career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we celebrate the 10th episode of our podcast and welcome all the new listeners who have joined us over the past few weeks. Of course, if you are a new listener, you should also listen to the first nine episodes. In them, we look at Cooter's beginnings in his first six albums. Today we reach the year 1978. Cooter has left his 20s behind, he is now 31. This is also the year he becomes a father. In August, his son Joachim is born, to whom we will soon return. Cooter's seventh album is also released. It is called Jazz. The more you get into it, the more great it becomes. But without a doubt it has a special place in Cooter's Awoover. Not only because it plows different ground than practically any other Cooter album, but also because Cooter himself distanced himself from it. Rightly so, we will see. So here we go. There are really only two topics about which Rye Cooter has been consistently silent for a long time, the Rolling Stones and the album Jazz. Cooter's brief flirtation with Jagger and company produced some great songs, but for Cooter it resulted in very little satisfaction. We covered this topic in detail in our third episode of the podcast. The Jazz album is a bit different. It's not just a matter of a few sessions and how much Cooter might be in this or that song. This is a complete solo album that Cooter recorded with his usual high level of commitment and ambition. Nevertheless, he distanced himself from it already a year later. When asked about it in interviews, he usually refused to say anything. Among his few documented statements is this one from 1983 for the book The Guitar Greats. I regard that album as a wretched mistake, a brief ugly interlude. It was not directional, nor was it even well considered or well executed and I hate it, but having done the damn thing, I was stuck with it, and I had to accept full responsibility, which I did, and take everybody's barbs and criticisms, which were all justified, I'm sure, and get on, because that damn thing was a dead end if ever there was one. Fortunately, as we will hear, there were at least a few somewhat kinder things to say, but the problem remains that, in retrospect, we know much less about the circumstances and background of the production than we do about the other Cooter albums. And since many critics and journalists didn't really know what to make of it either, it's simply one of Cooter's least discussed works. But that doesn't stop us from pulling out all the available sources. And that is not so little. After all, Cooter also wrote notes for jazz as he did for chicken skin music. And from these we take the overriding motto for jazz. The idea behind this album was that there has always been a lot going on in the periphery of popular jazz trends. We wanted to provide a thread of alternative jazz settings to some great music that falls within the 100-year scope of jazz in America. Let's take a quick look at what was happening in the music mainstream in 1978. Progressive rock was beginning to run out of steam and disco was taking over, with soundtracks like Saturday Night Fever and Grease topping the charts. At the other end, punk evolved with bands like the Sex Pistols. 
New impulses came from the dire straits, the jam or the boomtown rats. As usual, very little of this had anything to do with Ry Cooter. Instead, for his next album, he began to combine traditional jazz with Caribbean music, adding a 19th century habanera, songs from minstrelsy and black vaudeville, and chamber arrangements composed by early jazz musicians. A pivotal role in the production of the album was played by producer and arranger Joseph Byrd. Born in the town of Louisville in 1937 and raised in Arizona, he came to New York City in 1960. There he soon became part of the avant-garde scene around John Cage and Yoko Ono. The young eccentric had little interest in rock and roll, but rather in daring musical experiments that combined electronics, unusual instruments, and a somewhat ironic approach. In 1963, he moved to the West Coast, studied music history, joined the Communist Party, and formed the experimental rock band The United States of America. The group released only one album. In 1967, they performed at the Ash Grove in Los Angeles, a venue where he might have met Ry Cooter, of course. In the 70s, Bird released several albums under his own name and wrote film and television scores. It seems that he was the driving force behind jazz, at least according to David Scher, a bass clarinetist who played on three of the album's songs. He wrote on his website, The persuasive powers of Joseph Bird, an extraordinary arranger, composer, and scholar, were apparently too much for Rye to withstand. Joseph convinced him to participate in an album to be called Jazz, and wrote some very interesting arrangements of pieces by Bix Becky, Jelly Roll Morton, Burt Williams, etc. Rye seemed ill at ease throughout the project, and even aborted one session in a fit of petulance. I worked on the album, but not the brief tour or TV show that followed which ended, according to participants, with Rye locked in his dressing room and Joseph who only appeared with his back to the camera, all but ignored in the credits. So there we have a possible reason for Cooter's strict rejection of the album. It doesn't seem to have been a match made in heaven between him and Bird. Nevertheless, he didn't say a bad word about his co-producer, but at the same time he never worked with him again. When Cooter gave one of his few interviews on the subject to the New Musical Express in 1979, it came out at the end that there must have been musical differences between him and Bird. Jazz I don't even count. That was a squirrely thing. It was like, oh, what in the world am I gonna do now? Let's do this. Oh, okay. I liked making it, although I don't think it's something I should ever do again. But I learned a lot. I played things that I had never played before, and that's always good. The group is good. The spent stuff is good. That I like. That to me was strong had a kind of flair to it. But as a record, it's a little bit off. It's not my timing. It's not my feeling for tempos and textures. Jazz is another Warner Brothers release. It was produced by Cooter and Bird and recorded in 1977 at Anito Studios, North Hollywood. It was engineered by Lee Hirschberg and Douglas Decker. Cooter worked with more than 20 musicians and singers. Among them were old friends like George Bohannon on baritone horn, Pat Rizzo on alto saxophone, and Earl Hines on piano. David Lindley joined the group for the first time. 
He and Cooter had known each other since the early 1960s in the Los Angeles folk scene, but this was their first official collaboration on an album. Lindley plays mandolin and mando banjo on two tracks. Of course, we'll have to deal with him a lot more in future episodes, and we'll talk about him in more detail then. And we will meet him again at the end of this episode. Cooter clearly didn't want to win any design awards with the cover. It is all black, with orange-red letters whose crotch style is reminiscent of the Roaring Twenties. It says in capital letters, Rye Cooter Jazz. Directly underneath, there's a short musical notation. At the bottom it says, Arranged and conducted by Joseph Bird. That's it in all its simplicity. If you want to, you can see the fading enthusiasm in such a simple design. Apart from the fact that Cooter made a radical stylistic change after chicken skin music, not even returning to his blues roots, jazz is actually not such an unusual Cooter album. Once again, he has embarked on a journey into the early days of American music, unearthing unknown or forgotten treasures in the process. He stayed true to his great role model, Joseph Spence from the Bahamas, covering no less than three of his tunes, and otherwise he sticks to his method of reviving the old with respect and artistry. Only this time we land in the realm of ragtime and vaudeville, a musical genre that rock and blues fans usually have to make friends with first. The album kicks off with Big Bad Bill the Sweet William Now. It's a humorous 20s song in which Cooter combines his guitar with a complex horn arrangement, as he has done so many times before. The song is about a certain Bill, who used to be a brutal whipping boy in the city of Louisville, but thanks to his marriage has matured into Sweet William. Instead of making the city unsafe, he is now content with household chores like washing dishes or mopping the floor. The song was written by Milton Ager and Jack Yellen in 1924. Margaret Young was the first to have a hit with it. Later it was covered many times, even by Van Halen. We hear Young's version first, then Cooter's infectious celebration, as Rolling Stone called it. In the town of Louisville, they got a man called Big Bad Bill. I want to tell you, he sure was tough. Brother, he was rough. He had folks all scared to death. When he walked by, they held their breath. He was a fighting man, sure enough. Now Bill's took himself a wife, and he leads a different life. Cause Big Bad Bill is sweet, William now. Married life has changed him somehow. used to fear but now the people call him sweet papa willie dear stronger than samson i declare till the brown skin mama bobbed his hair song number two is face to face that i shall meet him the first of the three joseph spence adaptations while his repertoire included a wide variety of music from spirituals to popular and folk songs Spence had a personal style and sound that made him one of the most individualistic and unique musicians ever recorded. His arrangements are often repetitive, sometimes running through a song 10 to 20 times. Cooter had already adapted Great Dream from Heaven on Into the Purple Valley and coming in on a wing and a prayer on Boomer's Story. 
His versions recognize that one of the most obvious hallmarks of Spence's style is the unrepeatable nature of the material. So he and Joseph Byrd chose to create their own arrangements rather than attempt to emulate Spence. Spence's playing sometimes sounds like two guitarists at once. His growls and mumbles give his music a wonderfully unruly aura. In the liner notes, Cooter explained, The Bahamian guitarist, Joseph Spence, today plays old hymns and sacred songs so transformed and syncopated that even his wife, Louise, has trouble singing along with him. His style suggests a link between early brass and string band jazz. He plays with a strong parade beat, using tuba-like bass lines, two-part melody, and crazily punctuated blues lined for effect. The three traditional church pieces in this album are played by the string brass group according to Spence's syncopated missionary style, in which he plays everything from jingle bells to silent night. In his review for Rolling Stone magazine, Bob Blumenthal wrote, The Joseph Spence songs, which sound like a Salvation Army meeting conducted from the back of a wagon, with their mixture of brass, mandolin, and pump organ, are spirited, but of limited melodic interest. Next up is a Jelly Roll Morton medley of the Pearls and Tijuana. Morton was an American ragtime and jazz pianist of Louisiana Creole descent. His 1915 composition, Jelly Roll Blues, was one of the first published jazz compositions. He also claimed to have invented the genre. The Pearls was one of his many great compositions. It had two piano versions, a band version, a piano roll by Morton, and a 1938 record by Mary Lou Williams based on one of his themes. We listen in on a mid-twenties recording of The Pearls, followed by Tijuana. Cooter's version has a slight Hawaiian touch. Once again, he provides a great introduction in his notes. 
By the late 1930s, Jelly Roll Morton's music was considered old-fashioned and obsolete. In fact, his slow drag ragtime and sedate band arrangements were out of step with mainstream jazz by the time Louis Armstrong and Earl Hines recorded together in 1928. But in looking back, it seems that his Creole melodies and rhythms are closely connected to the Caribbean with its mixture of African, French, Spanish, and Mexican people. Morton's The Pearls and Tia Duana are played together here in a string band style that was popular in Mexico, Cuba, and later Hawaii. String groups using mandolins, guitars, Colombian tipples, and violins were common all through the South in Morton's time and probably drew from the same repertoire of 19th-century popular songs and hymns as the early brass bands that began playing in a jazz style around 1890 or 1900. The next song is called The Dream. According to Cooter, it comes from the late 19th century, around 1880. It's a slow drag number with a tango beat, played softly and not too fast. It was originally performed in brothels. There seems to be no recording of it when it was new, so we jump right into Cooter's version. Side one of the album ends with There Will Be a Happy Meeting in Glory, another Joseph Spence tune. The song was written in 1940 by a gospel songwriter named Adger M. Pace. It was originally called That Great Reunion Day. Before we hear Spence's version, here's a little anecdote about his visit to the United States. During a short tour in 1972, he played in Boston, where he met Ry Cooter. Spence had a magnetic presence on stage. It was almost as if he was in an altered state of consciousness. Cooter remembered the phenomenon. There was a tremendous force being exerted to get these little delicate tunes to come out so weird and so heavy. His face twitched. His eyes went every which way and blinked. In doing that, in screwing himself up that tight, this thing starts to happen. He took a guitar of mine, a Martin 00018, and just wrung it out. That guitar wasn't the same for about two years after that. It felt tired and weak, like maybe it had been in a steam bath or something. The guy had a profound effect on that instrument. In his 2018 review for NoDepression.com, Grant Britt wrote, Spence actually sings on There Will Be a Happy Meeting in Glory, but whatever language he's singing in is probably not written down anywhere. It's a sacred, syncopated strut on the beach punctuated by Spence's unearthly growls, his rhythmic grunts, and groans like guttural scatting. But once again, his guitar is the star of this show, 
a stunning stringed entanglement that sounds like three guitars pouring out licks as fast as their owner's fingers can fly. doesn't sing on his version of There Will Be a Happy Meeting in Glory. He transforms the song into a big orchestral piece. He is accompanied by Mark Stevens on drums, George Bohannon on baritone horn, Oscar Brashier on cornet, Stuart Brotman on cymbalon, Barbara Starkey on pump organ, and David Lindley on mandolin. Side 2 begins with a three-part tribute to American jazz musician and cornetist Bix Biederbecki. Born in Davenport in 1903, Biederbecki came from a wealthy family of German descent. In his musical socialization, there were some amazing parallels to that of Reichuder. He learned to play the piano by ear at the age of four. For a long time, he refused to learn music notation, which often caused him problems throughout his career. His interest in the cornet led him to teach himself the instrument. At the age of 15, he began playing his cornet to accompany the gramophone. That same year, you probably heard Louis Armstrong when he stopped in Davenport during an engagement on a Mississippi River steamboat. Biederbecki was one of the most important and influential white jazz musicians of the 1920s and one of the most important representatives of Chicago jazz. His improvisations were characterized by a mixture of lyrical phrasing and strong emotional restraint, making him a forerunner of cool jazz. The pure, clear tone of his cornet playing was legendary. He also created a series of piano compositions that an arranger friend transcribed for him. This is how Cooter introduced Biederbecki in his notes. Bix Biederbecki of Davenport, Iowa, learned cornet from some of the earliest jazz records and firsthand from the first jazz players to come north from New Orleans. By the time of his death in 1931 at 29, he was a legend among his fellow musicians for his beautiful cornet music, but he was also interested in concert piano, and particularly in the impressionistic style that Gershwin later became associated with. Davenport blues, flashes, and in a mist are represented here in a Salon jazz context that brings out the atmosphere of Bix's strange music. In 1927, Bix Biederbecki joined Paul Whiteman's orchestra in New York City. Three years earlier, the Whiteman Orchestra had premiered George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. During this time, Bix composed in a mist, which blends elements of late Impressionism with early jazz. Whiteman immediately had it arranged for his touring orchestra, no doubt looking for another Rhapsody. But first it was recorded by Biederbecki as a piano solo in New York City on September 9, 1927.
To help with the guitar chord arrangements on the three Bix Biederbecki songs, Joseph Bird turned to Ted Green, a renowned fingerstyle jazz guitarist and music educator. Bird knew Green from working with him on his album Joe Bird and the Field Hippies, the American Metaphysical Circus in 1968. Green had a vast knowledge of harmony and chords as applied to the guitar, and was one of the few people qualified for such a grand task. In 2005, Hooter told the Los Angeles Times, I was working on a jazz album and wanted to transcribe some of Bick's Beater Becky arrangements for guitar. I thought it was hard stuff, but it wasn't to Ted. He created arrangements that sounded like eccentric Beater Becky. In his late 20s, Biederbecki suffered from alcoholism. Paul Whiteman adored him, and when Bix became very ill, Paul sent him home to Iowa on salary to recover. While recovering, Bix composed three more songs for piano, one of which was an instrumental piece called Flashes. He did not record it himself, but copyrighted the composition in 1931. It was later recorded by jazz pianist Jess Stacy and jazz trumpeter Bunny Berrigan, among others. According to some inside information from the Rylanders discussion group, producer Joseph Bird copied the old piano transcriptions, and his wife played them for Cooter, who, like Biederbecki, could not read music well. Bird. This was a huge undertaking. I carefully wrote out the guitar parts and gave them to my friend Ted Green. Ted made tablature parts, but that was some tough music. Sure, I know how to write for guitar but tablature was never intended to do impressionistic music. Rye did it, though. Very impressive, but that's a mark of just how damn good he was. Bird's idea was to arrange the piano music for a chamber ensemble similar to what Biederbecki himself might have organized under ideal circumstances. Bird added this description of the particular difficulties involved in getting flashes on tape. It was something else again. No ensemble to help out and a guitar trying to play moving altered ninth and eleventh chords. Barbara had, Rye's idea, made a tape of the piano piece, playing very slowly, and he practiced with it. But when we went into the studio, and it was one of the last things we did, he struggled. Doing it in one take was just impossible, but my engineer, Douglas Decker, calmly recorded it in bits and pieces, and one day we presented Rye with the edited whole. He didn't like the idea but agreed, and that's what's on the album. By the time we did the promotional trip, though, Ryan was thoroughly pissed at me, and when I suggested we not do the middle movement, he just glared. The first time we heard it was at Carnegie Hall. He was flawless.
The last of the three Biederbecki tunes is Davenport Blues, which, despite its name, is not a blues at all. The original recording was made by Bix and his Rhythm Jugglers in Richmond in January 1925, with Tommy Dorsey on trombone. It's a lyrical song in the form and flavor of a Biederbecki cornet improvisation and has become a jazz and pop standard. With Cooter and Bird, the song again becomes a chamber music piece. The musicians are Harvey Piddle on clarinet, Tom Collier on vibraphone, David Scher on bass clarinet, and Tom Pedrini on bass. The salon jazz section of the album is pleasing, but less convincing than, say, the three Spence adaptations. Maybe there is simply less Cooter and Biederbecki. Bob Blumenthal, writing for Rolling Stone magazine, concluded, In contrast, Burt outfits Biederbecki's in a mist and Davenport blues with sleek reeds and vibes, creating a salon effect that's just a bit too pristine. Cooter does better by Bix in his guitar solo on Flashes while the Morton Tunes, multi-tracked on guitars, mandolins, tipple and harp, receive a lilting Latin treatment true to Jelly Roll's fondness for that Spanish tinge. Next up is the swinging minstrel song Shine, originally titled That's Why They Call Me Shine. First, let's hear what Cooter had to say about it in his liner notes. Shine has been recorded over the years by nearly everybody, but rarely in its original form. Ford Dabney and Cecil Mack wrote it around 1910, at the close of the Coon Song era, and it is a unique comment on that genre's blackface sensibilities. Shine passed into the jazz tradition, mostly without the introductory verse that really explains what the song is all about. The idea here was to reconstruct it in a 52nd Street, small band, setting. Both Cecil Mack and Ford Dabney were black, and at a time of grim racial prejudice, the song courageously takes on the subject race hate, but in a clever, comical way. The term shine was a racial insult, but Cecil Mack takes the insult and turns it into a compliment. An instrumental version of the song was a hit in 1924 for the California Ramblers. Shine was back in the charts in 1932 in a recording by Bing Crosby and the Mills Brothers. Here, the racial theme was still just about intact. Oh, why? My hair is curly, pants got curly hair. Now just because my teeth are pearly, also got pearly teeth. Just because I always wear a smile. Oh, keep on smiling. Like to dress up, babe. 
In the latest Later, though, the song became comprehensively sanitized. In some versions, the narrator was no longer even black. Missing from most versions was the introduction. As sung by Cooter, it makes the idea as clear as it can be. When I was born, they christened me plain Samuel Johnson Brown. But I hadn't grown so very big for some folks in this town. Had changed it round to Sambo, I was Rastus to a few. Then chocolate drop was added by some others that I knew. And then to cap the climax, I was strolling down the line. When someone shouted, fellas, hey, come on and pipe the shine. Oddly enough, for all his historical accuracy, Cooter was caught in the crossfire of some critics. Undoubtedly, Cooter understood Shine for what it was originally intended, a kind of jazz protest song. Still, there were those who didn't understand the complex play of irony and criticism. On his blog, Terence Blacker wrote, The oddest part of the story is that as the bleached version of Shine became established, it was the original anti-race message that became problematic. When Rye Cooter included the original version in his 1978 album Jazz, there was much tut-tutting and sucking of teeth among reviewers. Maybe it doesn't matter that a song with a powerful, unsettling message about race has down the years been cleaned up, whitened, and rendered harmless. I suspect that Cecil Mack wouldn't have cared too much. His song has been a hit for successive generations, after all. But to me, there's something paradoxically racist about this process of civilized censorship in the sacred name of good taste and not causing offense. What a hero Ry Cooter is for setting the record straight. You say just because, just because my hair is curly, I look at them girls curly. And just because, just because my teeth are curly, a rooty bee bop, 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 bop. And just because I always wear smile, I wear my jeans like a man of me. He always dresses in the latest style. Just because, just because a man of me, a boogly doo doo, a boogly doo doo. Take trouble smiling, never one. Presumably that kind of criticism bounced off Cooter as well. For him, the song was an opportunity to collaborate with another of his idols. And that, he revealed to Record Collector magazine in 2014, was one of the two things that made working on jazz worthwhile after all. Firstly, it was an excuse to work with the mighty Bill Johnson, who had founded the Golden Gate Quartet and was the greatest musical genius I have ever met. He was old and sick, but we worked together. Bill Johnson was an incredible person to stumble on, living out his days in Los Angeles as a high school janitor. For God's sake, I used to go down to his house, and we'd sit there up in the attic, because his wife didn't want to hear us, and listen to a cassette I'd made of his old records. He taught me a lot of things, how to sing, how to write lyrics and rhythm. His knowledge was incredible. He was a fabulous character. He and Gabby Pahinui were the two prime musical educators I've ever had. The other thing was that Walter Hill liked that record and called me up. End of discussion. For those of you who aren't so familiar with Cooter's film directors, it was Walter Hill who helped Cooter get his first original film score in 1980, which turned into a long and very fruitful collaboration.
In our next but one episode, we'll look at that very topic in The Long Riders. But back to jazz. The next track is also a song with a racist context, and again, Bill Johnson is involved as a vocalist. It's called Nobody, and here's Cooter's introduction. The great Burt Williams was the first black artist to reach crossover stardom in vaudeville. He would appear on stage in a broken-down tuxedo and blackface, as if to mark the passing of coon songs and minstrelsy, and recite his sardonic, double-edged monologues. He got star billing with Zekefield, incredible for the times, and his Columbia records like Nobody and Samuel the Night Porter were big sellers. When life seems full of clouds and rain, and I am full of nothing and pain, who soothes my thumping, bumping brain? When winter comes with snow and sleep, and me with hunger and cold feet. Nobody, with music by Burt Williams and lyrics by Alex Rogers, was first performed publicly in February 1906 in a Broadway production called Abyssinia, a show that featured live camels. Thanks to the song, Williams became a giant somebody, singing about being a nobody. He became so identified with the song that he was forced to sing it in almost every performance for the rest of his life. It is a somber and ironic composition, full of his dry observational wit, complemented by an intimate, half-spoken singing style. On one level, nobody is the rueful fatalism of an entire race. On another, it is one man's transcendence of it. That's what gives it its power. Cooter's version stays pretty true to the original. His voice is dry and ironic, and surprisingly reminiscent of that of actor Harry Dean Stanton, who later not only starred in Paris, Texas, but also sang for and with Cooter. Cooter's guitar is the only instrument that accompanies the wonderful speech song. The backing vocals are by Jimmy Adams, Cliff Givens, Bill Johnson, and Simon Pico Payne. I ain't never done nothing to nobody And I ain't never got nothing from nobody no time Oh yes, until I get something from somebody sometime The album ends with the third Joseph Spence tune we Shall Be Happy. The song appeared on Spence's 1964 album, Happy All the Time. You know when you get a glory line, you gotta be happy. But it is good, there'll be no dying when we get home to glory land. You be happy, happy all the time. Meeting with every friends and loved ones, knowing that we shall part no more. You be happy. Cooter's adaptation is a late highlight of the entire album. He transforms Spence's peculiar guitar minimalism into a multi-layered and varied orchestral piece. While on Nobody the guitar alone is enough for him, on We Shall Be Happy, he uses almost the entire album ensemble. Here's Cooter's intro.
When the guitar and horns are added to the mix, the piece is transformed into a precursor of Cooter's later film scores. During the grand finale, you can almost see the James Younger gang riding up in front of your inner eye. Jazz was released in May of 1978 to mixed reviews. Rolling Stone magazine wrote, Arranger Joseph Byrd has provided Cooter's guitars and voice with settings that are impeccably realized and never less than clever. The results, however, aren't particularly satisfying, especially given the nature of some of the material. It's an elegant recreation, but too much of the material never gets beyond the category of the well-mounted museum piece. The emotional engagement somehow seems to be missing. And without those strong emotions, do you have jazz? Years later, John Atkinson, writing for Stereophile, came to a different conclusion. The players, including on piano the venerable Earl Hines, a contemporary of both Becky and Morton, sound as though they are playing from a classical score. That's not meant to imply that the music is cold and emotionless, just that Cooter realizes the extent to which ego has to be suppressed in order to let the music speak, an album which will hit you intensely, with sound quality to match. One of the most favorable reviews appeared in Time magazine in 1978. Jay Cox wrote, Even Cooter's fans may be caught off guard by the direction of jazz, an unexpected anthology of tunes from Jelly Roll Morton, Bix Beater Becky, even the great Bahamian guitarist Joseph Spence. As the surprise wears off, though, and the rhythms become less remote, they will hear some of the loveliest, liveliest music in the air. Cooter presented virtually the entire album in a concert at New York's Carnegie Hall on June 19. It was an expensive show. It was even opened by three tap dancers known collectively as the Hoofers. Unfortunately, Cooter couldn't fill the hall. The New York Times published a somewhat lukewarm review. Mr. Cooter is not a jazz guitarist, and on the tunes that actually were jazz or jazz-derived, he was solid but far from gripping. One listened in vain for the fluidity and blues feeling of a Lonnie Johnson or the nimble expertise of an Eddie Lang. His solos were lead parts rather than improvisations. He seemed most at case finger-picking Joseph Spence's version of hymns or according behind the vocal quartet. So the evening cannot be described as an unalloyed triumph. But it was refreshing to find a musician of Mr. Cooter's reputation delving into unfamiliar territory to showcase little-known music and performers and refreshing to find a company like Warner Brothers backing such a venture. There seems to be no record of the evening, but five months later, on November 16, 1978, Cooter and Bird repeated the concert for an edition of the Soundstage series in Chicago. You'll find the YouTube link in the show notes. Tonight, from Chicago, Soundstage, Ry Cooter. That must have been a special night, too. The members of the Golden Gate Quartet and the entire orchestra wore tuxedos and bow ties. Only Joseph Byrd, carrying a baton, wore a white suit, always with his back to Cooter. Cooter sat up front with his guitar, the only one in a casual shirt. In the background, the word jazz shines in large letters.
There is so much effort and attention to detail in this performance alone that it is difficult to understand Cooter's apparent distance from the project. At the time, he was still fully involved in the project and willingly sat for an on-camera interview about the songs for the show. Here's Nobody performed together with the Golden Gate Quartet. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but me. Life seems full of clouds and rain, and I am filled with naught but pain. Who soothes my thumping, bumping brain? Nobody. At the end, there is a special encore. Cooter and Lindley sit alone on stage. Cooter tells us that he had watched a World War II movie on TV the night before. It's an ingenious introduction to the last song of the evening. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. If you will, this is the birth of a duo that would harmonize beautifully again and again in the years to come and would shine especially live. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Coming in on a wing and a prayer, right? Though there's one motor gone, we can still carry on. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. A show and what a fight Whoa. boys we really hit our target for tonight what else happened in 1978 in may cooter went on a short tour of australia and new zealand he called it the antipodean tour and played in sydney brisbane and melbourne among others he accompanied lenny carlston on jazz guitar on the album search for the floor played electric guitar on Rodney Kroll's Cinder Songwriter album Ain't Living Long Like This. Most importantly, Cooter took another step in the direction of film scoring after not having done so in the previous years. 
Cooter's song Available Space from his first album was used in the Jack Nicholson Western Going South. And for the auto worker drama Blue Collar, he collaborated again with Jack Nitsche. Blue Collar was the first directing effort of Paul Schrader, who had previously written the screenplay for Taxi Driver. The film stars Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Kato, who reportedly did not get along and fought constantly during filming. The film is both a critique of union practices and an examination of life in a working-class rust belt enclave. Blue Collar was universally praised by critics and appeared on several lists of the best films of the 70s. The blues-flavored score consists of some original compositions by Jack Nitsche, songs by Howlin' Wolf and Ike and Tina Turner, among others. The main track is a blues song called Hard Workin' Man. Ry Cooter told an Australian radio station about the genesis of the song. The whole cadence throughout the film is the sound of the stamping machines. Schrader had put up a Bo Diddley tune, 500% more man. It has the same tempo and the same beat. The film is about these poor guys who work on the line. They make no money and all they have is their macho image of themselves and how they can compete with one another. So 500% more man was ideal, but Schrader didn't want to use the song. He didn't want to pay any money for it and he didn't want any Bo Diddley reference in it either. He wanted something new. So me and Jack Nitsche sat down and wrote a song called Hard Working Man. It's a terrible song. It really is awful. We said, who can sing this? We need somebody with an awful voice. We called John Lee Hooker. He was too expensive. Tom Waits couldn't be found, which I would have preferred. So I said, let's get Beefheart and try it with him. He's pretty crazy, but let's see where he is. He was in the desert, where he lives near LA. He drove down and was two hours late. When he got there, he was in a bad mood. The producer of the film was a rich Englishman. He expected a nice title song. So here comes Beefheart. I gave him a lyric sheet. I said, Don, here's what you gotta do. You have to watch the movie and don't sing where there's space. We'll cue you, go in this little vocal room. So he sat down and at first of course couldn't do it. He couldn't even read and sing the words at the same time. He started to get mad. I said, Don, just do it. It's those lights. I hate all those lights. I hate Hollywood. Turn those lights off. I see you people and I know what you're thinking. The producer dropped to his knees. Everybody down, he said. Beefheart was raging in his room. I have to go to the toilet. I said, no, Don, you're causing a lot of trouble. Why don't you just go on and finish, and then you go to the bathroom? So he got madder and madder, and finally he really did a good performance. TV dumb. Swing my hammer strong and And that brings us to the end of episode 10 of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. Finally, a big shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much for your support. 
which helps us cover some of our production costs. A special thanks goes out to Dean McPherson, our first subscriber in the Money Honey category. If you would like to support the Rye Cooter story too, please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the Rye Cooter story. Levels start at just $1 per month. $10 Money Honey subscribers like Dean not only get a shout out on the podcast, they will also be entitled to our first ebook, which will be available for download sometime in November. Every 10 episodes, we'll release a revised transcript of the entire podcast as an ebook, so you can read it all again. And who knows, maybe one day the whole collection will become an actual Rye Cooter book. But that's still up in the air. So back to the daily business. In two weeks, we'll continue with another new beginning. Rhythm and Blues. Time for the Bop Till You Drop album, which by the way was my first Cooter album back then. I always liked the line, well me and Frank, we're the best of friends. As far as I'm concerned, it's a great friendship. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.